Now, Habakkuk, in case you're wondering, is five books back from Matthew. It's five books. It's the easiest way to say it. Five books back from the New Testament. So we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. And the last time we looked at chapter one. Now, we just came off of, you know, the Gospels, the Gospel of John. Very encouraging, very uplifting. Holy Spirit is in there. A lot of good stuff. How do I live as a Christian? And now we're going into the book of Habakkuk. It's almost like culture shock because we're going to go back actually from where we are, about 2,600 years. He's one of the minor prophets uh, in the Old Testament, although when you really read about what he says, he's not minor at all. The prophecy is a big prophecy. It's an aggregate prophecy. And uh, the title to last Sunday's message was When God's Truths Are Troubling. So, again, we go from the teachings of Jesus, very uplifting, now to something that it's a little harder to deal with, even as individuals, as believers. You know, we really have to get in the right mind frame of being in this book. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at pretty much Habakkuk is done. He's making his case. He doesn't like God's truths. They are troubling to him. He talks to God, and he pleads with him about how he could sort of change his plan a little bit. Uh, And God doesn't change his plan. So Habakkuk, in the second chapter sits back, he listens. And through that listening, he receives understanding. And sometimes we just need to be quiet and listen for the Lord and hear what he has to say. And this is what Habakkuk does. Now, we're going to look at a few things that happen. We're going to look at near and far prophecy, and we'll talk about that. When God's prophetic word went out, often God would say, well, this is going to happen in a few years. Well, this is going to happen in many years after that. Well, this is going to happen way into the future for a different culture and a different time and a different dispensation. So that's in there. We're going to look at five woes that God pronounces on the ungodly and those who rely on themselves. But we're also going to look at three statements of hope. And God always gives hope. Even through the most difficult prophecy, God gives us a message of hope. And I love that. To me, in my mind, I'm very imaginative. I think of a a tapestry, a weave, a fabric. And you have these different colors in it. And all of a sudden... Through this tapestry, there's like a a strand of silver or a strand of gold, something sparkly that makes its way through the tapestry, and it really, your eye really picks it up. So that's where I look at those three messages of hope in here that we're going to cover. Now, the other thing is, I often talk about our culture, because it would be a shame to say, well, that happened a long time ago. That's a nice story, Pastor Joe. Now I'm going to go back to 2013 when I leave the building. But we really make a mistake if we don't look at the basic message and general revelation about God and what he desires and not make the application to ourselves and today's culture. So we're going to jump in. Verse 1. Habakkuk says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved. Habakkuk, (laughs) I said last uh, Sunday, he made his closing arguments to the Lord. If we were in a courtroom, he's exhausted his different reasoning. And now Habakkuk sits back and he waits for God's reply. A rampart or a watchtower. In those days, you know, you didn't have radar, you didn't have, you know, jets. So in order to know if an enemy was coming, they would build these huge towers. um, Just fit for maybe a handful of people and you would go up the tower, you would put your most trusted person in there. And he would look over the countryside, and this was done in shifts, and if there was an enemy coming, he could run down the watchtower or give a signal to the people and say, danger is approaching. 
But this is a different application. This is more of a spiritual understanding than a literal understanding because Habakkuk was tasked not with the physical well-being of Judah, but with their spiritual well-being. And I got to tell you, ministry's changed over the years. In America, you can get smorgasbord of ministry. But any leader in a church or having tasked over uh, uh, spiritual well-being, that has to be their number one priority, to warn them about danger that's coming through maybe satanic or cultural forces, or certainly sometimes when you look in the mirror, there's your biggest oppression. There's your biggest problem, right? That's got to be maintained. However, whether it was a tower or not that Habakkuk scurried up into, um, he was in a quiet place. He finds a nice quiet spot to just listen for the Lord. And we have to do that as well. Because I, the best thing I can do, and, and maybe it's not the best analogy, but in a, in a marital relationship, if there's one spouse that's constantly talking, 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 and they don't give the other person a chance to express their feelings, there's going to be problems in that relationship. So we have to look at the same thing with God. Sometimes we just have to be quiet and be still and listen for his voice. In addition, check this out. He expects to be reproved, corrected. Now this shows humility as he's waiting on the Lord. And the question is, are we open to correction, reproof, even adversity? In Job chapter 2, when his wife is complaining about what's going on in the family and the things that they're dealing with, Job says to her, shall we not accept adversity as well as good from God? That's a sign of maturity. When we take those wedding vows, it's for better or for worse. Some people have the idea, well, if it's for worse and it gets worse, I'm just out of the relationship. No. Relationship comes with its good and its bad. It's a sign of maturity. Verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. Now check this out. Not only is God not changing his plan, but the original plan he's giving to Habakkuk, and he says you need to spread the word. You need to get it out there. I'm revealing myself to you and my desire for my people to you. Make sure it gets out there. The fact that we're reading this 2,600 years later shows the obedience of Habakkuk in spite of the fact that he didn't like the message. You know, I want to meet this guy. Really mature. Now, it might have started out on clay tablets, and now we're reading it on fine paper. But the bottom line is, are we obedient when God tells us to do something that we don't necessarily want to hear? You've been a believer long enough in your prayer, in your time with the Lord, in your reading, there's going to be times that you don't like the answer. But are we still going to be obedient the way Habakkuk was? That's the important question. And that he may run who reads it. In other words, I want, God wanted his word to be clearly understood, and he wanted it to be spread. Now, back then they didn't have group texts or uh, Twitter or Facebook, so, hey, the way you did it was by word of mouth. It would have been great if Habakkuk could have gone on Facebook and said, I had this great time with the Lord today, and everybody needs to hear what the Lord has to say. You know, and it starts to catch on. But that's not how it happened back then. So it had to be spread by word of mouth. And if if it meant running from village to village, then so be it. Verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. 
because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Again, this aggregate prophecy, right? It's, it's this prophecy and there's just so much in it. First thing is, again, near and far. What was coming near was this Babylonian invasion. Now, even the near wasn't so near because it was several years off. It could have been decades off, depending on where you put the timeline of the book. After that, now all the people could see in Judah was, man, we're being oppressed. This is bad. Will this ever end? However, he even speaks about further down the road, 539 B.C., when the Medo-Persians rose up and conquered the Babylonians. It was a little bit of a reprieve there. Even further in the future, was it was messianic. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10.37, speaks about this particular scripture. And I'm not going to make the connection until we get into Hebrews after we finish Habakkuk. I'll elaborate on that. And for general revelation. God gives us prophecy so we could get to know him through his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll follow my word. How do we get to know God? By reading his word. Because he expresses himself in his word. Makes sense. However, to us humans, it seems slow. Even the good news that God speaks about, it seems slow to us. That's why he's kind of redundant about, listen, it's not going to tarry. It's in my timing, God says. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. Be a little bit patient. We have to have faith in waiting. <laughs> it reminds me of a scripture in Galatians 6, 9, which says, let us not grow weary in doing good. Now, why does he write this? Because sometimes we do get weary doing good. There's things that are against us. In due season, we will reap if we do not lose heart. It's a conditional statement. We can't quit. It's never a good time to quit. You see, faith means trusting and worshiping God. Pride, which we're going to get to, means worshiping and trusting of the self. Because we can just do whatever we want when we want. We don't have to wait for God. I'm the master of my own destiny. I am, I'm a free moral agent. So it's easier that way, but it's not necessarily going to work out well because it's not according to God's will. Verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So now we're contrasting the prideful with the godly. This is also one of those statements of hope that I told you about. Um, the first one is this one, and this is woven through this prophecy of a difficult reality. Now, I was so moved by this that on our church face Facebook wall, I actually put a pretty big paragraph about this one scripture that's so powerful and it's reflexive it's reflective it goes back and forth the just shall live by faith now at, on first glance we can say oh yeah when you find a just person a nice you know christian person we'll find them living by their faith but it's deeper than that because it's the faith that justifies right this is a little a little deeper here what is justification it's where god declares us righteous by his decree, because he can do that. But why does he declare us righteous? Because we believe in him, and we trust in him. Well, in our dispensation, we believe that Jesus died for our sins. We didn't actually see it happen, but because of that faith, that's that vehicle to receive that justification, and then that further sanctification. It's, now, we say, well, Pastor Joe, this is in the Old Testament. Remember, the Bible says that Abraham, righteousness was imputed to him because he believed in God. He trusted God. Take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. Huh? Most people today would say, I'm not following you anymore. I'll follow my little idol. They don't tell me to do stuff like that. 
things like that. But Abraham did what he was told, and of course his son was spared. But he trusted God. He believed in God through all these circumstances. So it's reflexive. You'll find the just people living by faith, but also faith is the process towards that justification. Very powerful. 2,600 years to the Judahites, it was powerful. In the 16th century, it was so powerful that it sparked a reformation under Martin Luther. And it's also powerful today. God always gives his people a message of hope and encouragement. Now, I'm going to get a little personal. Some of you may have walked in here this morning with baggage. I put on the Facebook wall, if you're really struggling, fight the urge to stay in bed. Come to church. Hear the message. Let God's word lift you up. I can't read, you know, you, it's a good barrier, you know, um, our, our foreheads are not like the projector where stuff is said on there, so I don't know what you're going through, but God knows, and you know. So be encouraged this morning. Let the word lift you up, because God wants to encourage you. It, it's a fact that we have to go through difficult things in life. God can't, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't do us any good, it wouldn't make us mature, but he wants to be there with us, and he wants to encourage us through it. Verse 5. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home, because he enlarges his desire as hell. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. So there's a transition here from the just man to the prideful man, now we're speaking about the Babylonians. All right? God's setting the stage here. Two types of people in the world. Right? Now we're going to go into what, what you know, uh, Habakkuk had a problem with, a problem with these Babylonians. God's going to speak about them, and then he's going to speak about what is going to happen to them. So, number one, they're proud. They have pride issues. Mix that with drunkenness, wine, alcohol. Certainly drunk on power. And three, that they're unsatisfied. They can't be satiated. They have a wandering and a conquering spirit. You see, when there's a void in our lives, it can only be filled with God. That's how God designed us. What's that thing always missing in my life? Oh, it's got to be a new car. Get my new car. After a few years, the new car smell goes away. And, you know, it's got to be a, a house down the shore. Oh, this is, this is the life. Oh, it's raining so much. This, is, this stinks. You know, and we just keep trying to, I need that promotion. I get the promotion, I'm on top. I can tell people what to do. I'm still not fulfilled. There's a void, and that void can only be filled with the things of God. We don't realize it until we actually believe and trust and let him fill our lives and our hearts. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, nutrition. I enjoyed nutrition class so much. There's a uh, uh, four calories per gram of protein and carbohydrates, and there's nine calories program of fat. So you look at life almost like carbohydrates are the things of the world. You know, you think, well, it's, there's not a lot of calories. You just keep putting it in, putting it in, eating those pretzels, eating those pretzels. For me, it's bread. Once I start, I can't stop. Okay? Carbohydrates, there's no satiety value to it. Or we can go for the good fats, the olive oils and the fish oils, more calories. Once you start eating it, it sends a message to the brain and there's satiety value to it. Ah. Oh, I hit the spot. I feel really good about this. The things of the world are carbohydrates. The things of God are the good oils, the fish oils and the, the olive oils and the really nice stuff that God made to make us work really well. 
So a little, little nutrition lesson woven into this. Uh, but listen, if you don't know the Lord, this is what you've been missing. In order to be filled, you have to be filled with the things of God. But the Babylonians, they weren't. And they, they were just a, a force to be reckoned with. I actually find it tragic when I find whether the person's a believer or a non-believer, maybe in their 70s and their 80s, and they're still unsubmitted. They're still unsatisfied. They want more. They're not happy with what God has given them in life or where they are in life. And it's a shame. I've got to tell you, at 45, I know I'm halfway there. <laughs> if, if some serious accident doesn't befall me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side here. You know, we're, in a, we're on downhill uh, at this point. But it, it gives me a perspective check, you know, as we start to get older. Hopefully we get that perspective check. Didn't happen with the Babylonians. So what are, we, what are we looking at here? We're looking at, remember, this started with Judah's wickedness. Babylonians judged them. Medo-Persians judged them all the way up and on until we can look at our own culture. We're Americans. We're free. You know, we have the greatest military. Well, God can deal with us as well. And I think it's very important that we don't miss that. When men and women are not submitted to God and they're ruling, there's no end to their insatiability. Coincidentally, this week I was actually amazed from Sunday to Sunday, the United States is powerful, powerful government, one of the most powerful governments on the planet. Several agencies, federal agencies, are, are embroiled in a scandal. The IRS, the HHS, the State Department, the DOJ, ICE, and possibly the executive branch. Now, I don't know how I would be if I was in one of those. Maybe I would be different. They'd say, oh, Pastor Joe's changed. You know, look, he's the head of the HHS or whatever. But you start to get sloppy. You have this desire for power. You start to get sloppy and you start running roughshod over the rules because of that desire for power. So let's not liken this just to the Babylonians. But it's worse, infinitely worse, what has to do with God's people. Because... Show me any pagan society and I'll show you a church in that society that's negatively affected by it. What about Western uh, Christianity? What about when uh, Christianity grows so big and it becomes such a monstrous organization that now there's scandals? You hear about the sex scandals and the money scandals, right? And what do they do? A lot of them, they cover it up. They do just what the world does. They sweep it under the rug. They start destroying documents, Somebody might find out. And you know what happens? The little guy on the bottom gets squashed. We don't care about the victims down here because we have to maintain this organization. We have to maintain this power. Power is a drug. Let me tell you something. It's one of the most powerful drugs present on the earth. Verse 6. Shall not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, how long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will, not, will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. So this is God speaking prophetically to the Babylonians, but let's not miss the woes. So here's the first woe. The first woe is thievery, just taking stuff that's not yours. And the root of it is, the root of it is selfish ambition. And roots are very important. When we look at our own lives and we wonder, 
in our own behaviors, why we do the things that we do, why we have fights with our spouse when this subject always comes up, we have to stop and look at the root. When I see a weed growing in the garden or on my lawn, and it looks like a little nothing, and I, I go and I get down real deep and I pull it out, and there's this huge taproot that's feeding this weed. If you pull the head of the weed off, it's going to grow back. You've got to get the root out. So let's start looking at some of these roots. Now, a woe, in case you don't know, is a pronouncement that God has made on his judgment of evil. This theme here of retribution by the oppressed is woven into it. You did this to all them, well, eventually now it's going to happen to you. Sort of the biblical version of what goes around comes around. In the case of Babylon, they stole gold. They stole furniture. They stole everything from the people that they conquered. They loaded it up on these big carts and they just took it away to the, to the royal class. And when the Medo-Persians rose up and conquered Babylon, they were partying, drinking, uh, they were sitting on golden furniture, and they were using stolen goods at the time. And the Medo-Persians showed no mercy to the Babylonians. Now, this is biblical history. You can see this in Daniel. It's also secular history. Pick up any good secular old history book, and you'll find that there's, they match. As a matter of fact, a lot of archaeologists use the Bible to find distances between cities when they start to dig, and they're always successful. But what's sad is, remember, it started with the Judahites. They were the Jews. They were God's people. And they did it to their own poor. And that's why God had to step in in the first place. Again, it's always worse when God's people do it. You expect it from the world. Hey, I'm rich. I don't want to be like that poor guy. Heck no. I will do everything I can to stay in this position. But when Christians do it, or when God's people do it, it's far worse when we don't have that compassion. It's right in God's law to take care of the poor and the, the widow uh, and the fatherless. It's, it's right there. It may seem in this world like people get away with stuff, but the truth is no one gets away with it. God will eventually deal with it. So the question is, do we have selfish ambition? Well, I would never do something like that, probably because we don't have the opportunity to do something like that. What if God put us in charge of a, a kingdom and we still had that root inside? Maybe we would do something like that. Selfish ambition. Are we ambitious for the Lord and the things of God and to see souls saved, or are we ambitious just to keep elevating ourselves? Verse 9. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster or the hand of evil. You gave shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many people, and sinned against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. The second woe, covetousness coupled with a desire for insulation. In other words, to just continue to amass wealth, to insulate ourselves. And maybe we all do that in some respect. How much do we really need to work? How many jobs do we really need to have? Is it to feed our covetousness and our desire for insulation? And, and you know what? It, it's Satan's trickery on us. Does it ever end? Are we still working way into our advanced years, still amassing stuff that we may never even use? But it's because it's our desire to insulate ourselves. And the more we insulate ourselves, remember, the less we trust the Lord. Right? 
God wants us to, to work and to feed our families and things like that, but sometimes striking the balance is a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing. I, I think about the Babylonians, but I also think about maybe some famous names, billionaires, Warren Buffett, George Soros. I'm sure you've heard those names before. When they made their billions, did they step on anybody in the process? Because God saw that. How many did they step on? How many maybe died as a result of it? I don't know. I haven't followed their, their I've followed some of it, but not a whole lot of it. But God knows. They may seem untouchable, but in the end, everyone has to give an account. Remember the parable of the, uh, the rich fool? Just amassing and amassing. And God says to him, this night your soul will be required of you, you fool. You just kept amassing and amassing, and tonight your life will be taken. How are you going to answer for that? Now, the caveat is many uh, who are, listen, uh, let's, let's make sure we understand this. This isn't an Occupy Wall Street message. This isn't eat the rich, okay? God doesn't do that in his scripture. As a matter of fact, God used many wealthy people over time to bless the work of the Lord. So it's not rich people are bad. Absolutely not. Scripture doesn't reflect that. But how do we make our riches? And what do we do once we have our riches? That's important. And I, I submit to you that Americans, we, are wealthier than three-quarters of the earth's population. So just keep that in mind. Verse 11, the stone beams, the stone, the beams are personified, crying out and testifying against the men that built these palaces. Why? Because probably they use slave labor. That's a no-no. <laughs> it's not good. Kind of reminds me of Luke 19 where even Jesus said, that if the people don't cry out to me as the Messiah, the stones would cry out. So this personification of inanimate objects, could God make things like that cry out? I'm sure he could, he could do anything. He could make a donkey talk to Balaam, right, when he was riding him. But I just want to look at this covetousness. You know, maybe a word that we're more familiar with, the word is jealousy. Do you realize that jealousy is responsible can be responsible for breaking all Ten Commandments. Think about that for a moment. Start knocking them down one by one. Jealousy, 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 covetousness. I want what they have. And it's ugly up close. And it's really ugly when Christians do it. Always looking around, always seeing what somebody else has. Well, how come they have that and I don't have that? Be happy with what the Lord gave you. Maybe he has a different ministry for you. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity or sin. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people, people's labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm going to come back to verse 14. But the third woe is exploitation. Through murder, robbery, destruction. Remember, Babylon... Uh, one pastor actually went there. I was reading his account, and he said, oh, it's still there. The wall is still there in Iraq. It's very impressive. They said that you could run, uh, the wall was so thick and massive that you could run three chariots abreast, side by side, across the top of the wall. That's how incredible the structure was. And then the pastor, after looking at it in the, in the museum, he stopped himself and said, this was built through men's misery. And he had a different... Uh, take on the walls of Babylon and the Babylonian Empire. You know, it's a perspective check. This city was built by men's misery. And I, I couldn't help myself but look at this 
a city that's built on sin or iniquity. Sin City, Las Vegas. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Under the veneer of the postcards and everybody, I love these commercials where everybody's drinking and gambling and they're all handsome and they're all smiling and they're rolling the dice. Oh, I won again. Really? What's reality? Kids could be in the car. How much dyphus or family services, these addictions to gambling are so bad that the kids are neglected, that their whole life savings are gambled away. Really? Gambling, prostitute. You find me a city that's very active? Gambling, prostitution, crime, drugs, and poverty. It looks good on a postcard, but there's an undercurrent of evil that lurks below the pretty postcards. What about human trafficking? That's big in cities. The last time I read about human trafficking, uh, a few months back, the FBI had done a sting. Most of the, usually girls, trafficked. They, they found them in big cities. Our cities. In the United States. Slavery. It's terrible. And for what purpose? Vanity? Achievement? It's all going to burn in fire. Again, if you, listen, if you first walked into this church today for the first time, this is God's word. You know, next week or next month, we'll get into something that makes you feel like you're floating on air. But this is maturity. This is God's word, right? I mean, hey, pastor, that was great. We're all, you know, it's all going to burn. It's wonderful. <laughs> Chapter three, actually, is it's, it's better. It's, it gets progressively better. <laughs> so just give us a few weeks, okay? Come back. <laughs> Verse 14. 14, I'll read that one again. This is good. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here's the second promise of hope. God will eventually, in his timing, now for us as believers, ah, Lord, how long do we have to wait for this? I've read about the, you know, the tree of life and all the living creatures and we're, we're, we're going to be so close to you and we won't sin anymore. We say, how long as believers... How long are you going to tarry? And God says, it's in my time period. It'll come. And when it comes, believe me, it'll be, there'll be nothing like it. So God will usher in his kingdom of peace and of rest. Wouldn't you like to rest? Just to, you know, some of you, you come in here, you're weary. You know what your work looks like. You know there's a project due. You know there's something coming up with your kids. You know there's a relationship issue you have to deal with and you're tired. This is what we look forward to. We see a lot of heads nodding in unison. Peace and rest. His coming millennial kingdom will overshadow any city that, God, that man can build. For every of man's sins, God shows us an overshadowing, a foretelling of a permanent remedy. Remember, this was such a difficult prophecy that the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, had to sprinkle these promises of hope through this prophecy so it could be dealt with easier. Verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid. Because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. 
The fourth woe, exploitation through humiliation, debasement, and vulnerability. Most likely, the misery that the Babylonians wrought. Apparently, they were big drinkers. But at the same time, others needed to drink to numb the pain. It just was a horrible existence. And alcohol was something that just deadened their senses so they didn't have to face reality. But it made them vulnerable. There's also an element here of sin and drunkenness, sin, the sin of drunkenness and lewdness in Babylon by exploitation, hand in hand with this fast-paced Babylonian city lifestyle. And as I'm reading this, the word exploitation was emblazoned across my mind. I kept thinking of that word, exploitation. Now, there are two real pressing issues in our society. And I have real disdain for somebody who exploits somebody else. 22 years ago, I, I raised my hand and took the oath to defend the Constitution and to try my best to stop things like that. But we have an epidemic of heroin use, hardcore drugs. And you know what the pusher does? They want to party with you. They want to be your friends. They want to give you some for free. They want you to like them and love them. And then when they get you hooked, now you'll pay. That's sick. That's what an ex ex exploitation does to others. What type of sick mind does it take to do that and hook these other people? All the responsibility they may have for so many that have overdosed and died. To them, it's nothing. They just walk over the bodies. Same thing with human trafficking. We as a church support in various ways to fight human trafficking. You know, and I read about an account of a brave young lady who came out of it uh, in her early 20s. She was a waitress at a diner, and she said this older couple came in, mom and dad looking couple, and she would sit with them. They would come in frequently, and they, they, she had the look that they liked. They were, they were wolves, and they would listen to her dreams and the type of guy that she liked. And they have these men, real handsome men, that they pay good money for every girl that they get. And miraculously, two weeks later, this guy of her dreams comes in, starts talking to her, dating her, gets her to, to strip, gets her to take drugs, and little by little, he gets her into this lifestyle. Sick. Sick. I hope everybody turns to the Lord, but for those that die in this state, I wouldn't have a problem watching them get judged. I say that now. I don't know. But it's, it's just horrible. To think about that. This stuff goes on in the United States, this country that we love so much. So, exploitation. Let's bring it, let's bring it up to 2,600 years because that's really where we live. And there's an application to, for us today. Verse 17, he even speaks about... Now, the, the Lebanon was known for its beautiful cedar trees, these great forests of these magnificent trees. And they would cut these trees down, the Babylonians, to make their siege ramps, to make their military equipment, Then they just would cut, cut, cut. The beasts, for sport, they would hunt for sport, uh, they would torture animals just so they could show their manly prowess. You read about this culture, nothing could stop them. And God is even concerned, interestingly enough, about the animals and the, the cedar-laden Lebanon. So he cares for all of his creation. He wants man to tend the earth and to use his creation, but he doesn't want us to abuse it. God is, I love that about him, he's just well-balanced in everything. Verse 18. Last two verses, or last three. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? 
the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it, to make mute idols? Woe to him who says to wood, Awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord in his holy temple, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So the fifth and last woe is the woe of idolatry. How insulting to a, a God, a sentient God, who has feelings, who has, who has love. He's, God is love, who's made us to actually love each other. A lot of the things that he is, he's ingrained in human beings and set us free as free moral agents. How insulting is it to that God for us to take? And now we may laugh at this. This is what the cultures did back then, but then let's talk about today. They would take a piece of wood and, and cut it from a tree and start carving a face out of it and then maybe melt some gold and, and dr- dress it over the God's face. And now it's, pretty, it's a pretty God because it's wood in the center but gold on the end. And they did this stuff. And then to say to their friends, oh, man, I worked tireless, tirelessly for weeks on my God. Now my God is finally something. Look, I even spit-shined his face. Doesn't he look really pretty? Now you put it up on your altar in your home and you bow down and you worship to that God. That's ridiculous. So this is what the Babylonians did. This is, uh, uh, you know, God was insulted by it. Uh, Babylonians had their cadre of false gods. But in the 21st century, sometimes we have our own gods. Oh, we don't worship little trinkets and stuff because we're too smart for that. We're technologically advanced. However, Whatever we put inordinately or obsessively our time, our money, and our energy in, what could those gods be? Now, some of these things, I will tell you, are good things, are wonderful things. But if we're over-focused on that and we leave God out, well, that's our God. That's what we worship. Education. Americans were big in education. I went to a four-year college uh, degree, you know, from a good school. I don't worship my education. Uh, our work, sometimes we worship our work, could be our kids and our grandkids. Our looks, power, money, sometimes retirement. Everything's put in that, that category there. We worship our leisure, our recreation. Did I miss anything? You can call out if you like. Maybe one or two might have hit a nerve to some of us. It's just as offensive as worshiping a little idol that can't do anything for us. Now, let me just read this one last verse, because this is our third promise of hope. It says, but the Lord. So these uh, idols, they can't speak, they can't help, they can't do anything, they can't answer. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Kind of reminds me of Psalm 46.10, where it says, Be still and know that I am God. There's a lot in here. And I love that. When you read the Psalms or you read when God speaks, he wants us to, at some points, just be quiet. Just be still. We are his creation. He should be in control. So no matter what are, what's happening with these Babylonians, continue to worship God because he has all the answers. Now, This chapter starts out with Habakkuk waiting in silence and ends with all the earth commanded, all the earth, to be commanded to also sit still in silence. And we 
would do well to stop struggling and be silent before the Lord, as Habakkuk did. Whatever you're here this morning with, whatever you're struggling with, I would just ask you to put it on the table this morning. Whatever you came here with, whatever spiritual baggage you're carrying, do me a favor, just leave it in the lobby and go home without that baggage. Just sit before the Lord. Whatever is pressing, whatever you feel is just a, an ogre, it's dominating your life, trust the Lord. Cry out to him. Call out to him. Say, you know what, Lord? I kind of hedged my bets with you and the world, but now I'm going to really trust you with this, this monster that's in my life, this Goliath that's so big, and I don't have any stones to hit him with. You've got to do it, Lord. Habakkuk learned some great lessons by being quiet and still before the Lord. Number one, he learned just because someone appears to be materially successful doesn't mean they have the Lord's favor. We can apply that. Two, he learned just because someone seems to be getting away with it, nothing gets past the Lord. He's just being patient. Remember, we spoke about that last Sunday. Patience and punishment, how they go together. God's punishment is absolute. Absolute. There's no turning around from his punishment eternally. That's why he's so patient with us. He's so patient with the bad guys of the world. He wants them to turn as well. Three, just because someone else's sins look comparatively worse doesn't mean that God's okay with our sins. Sometimes we do that as Christians. Like we've arrived now. We're wonderful and we can start pointing fingers at everybody else. No. Forget about that comparative sin nonsense. It doesn't work in God's economy. Yes, the Babylonians were vicious and vile sinners, but what was worse was God's people were oppressing their own. That was even worse in God's eyes. Well, it wasn't worse, but he had to deal with it. Lastly, Habakkuk learns something that we all need to learn this morning. When faced with difficulty, coupled with the fact that we're not really sure what God is doing right now, it's best to be quiet, to wait, to listen and to trust to God with the outcome. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. And Lord, sometimes we read this book and it packs a punch and it, it knocks us off our pedestal and it has us reeling a little bit. But we get to see an honest look at ourselves.